leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. As the Trump administration calls for significant increases in military spending, it is also seeking steep cuts to the National Institutes of Health, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and programs used to address issues of global health. Michael Osterholm, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, in a recent op-ed in the New York Times, argues that issues such as vaccine development, the need to combat antibiotic resistance, and respond to new infectious disease outbreaks are fundamental issues of national security. We spoke to Osterholm about global trends fueling the threat of infectious disease, the dangers of proposed budget cuts, and why the administration needs to invest in new ways to respond to the threats we face. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here with you. We have a new administration that's put forward a budget that calls for deep cuts in science. At the same time, there's growing concern about North Korea, Syria, and other threats around the world that has the administration making military spending a top priority. We've got a House and Senate that is fiscally conservative and searching for ways to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Let's start with the proposed cuts to the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. How deep are those cuts and and how would they play out? What would be the impact to research and and public health? Well, first of all, uh, this is really a time when we ought to be investing more. Our basic sciences, particularly in the area of infectious diseases, as I've laid out in our recently published book, Deadliest Enemy, our war against killer germs, we have some amazing challenges ahead of us that we need to to address uh, as soon as possible in terms of trying to avert uh, having kind of the uh, unthinkable become the inevitable. Um, having said that, uh, I do know that the proposed budgets that have been put forward for NIH, CDC, and even the State Department uh, in areas around uh, USAID and potential foreign aid to countries to deal with infectious disease issues. Um, are all budget items that are likely not to be realized as the president uh, has put them forward. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that there will not be cuts, but I don't think they'll be quite as severe as, as was put forward. Any cut right now, however, is based on what already was a shortfall in necessary resources. We saw in the Zika outbreak situation of last summer. We're going to see it again this summer when it comes back that we're just inadequately prepared to 
to respond to that. Uh, tomorrow we'll have more crises, whether it's another large Ebola outbreak, uh, MERS outbreak, uh, hopefully not pandemic influenza, but surely it be that. So, um, you know, just as hurricanes are inevitable, uh, big outbreaks of infectious diseases uh, are also inevitable, and we need to be prepared for that. You mentioned USAID, that's the United States Agency for International Development, talking about cuts to that, to the State Department. These are not agencies typically thought of as public health agencies, but they do play an important role in that regard. Can you explain? Right. Well, so many of the infectious disease issues we deal with uh, have the, the likelihood of starting somewhere outside our borders. And that's why in an op-ed piece that Mark Olshek from my co-author, Dennis Enemies, and I wrote in the New York Times several weeks ago about the fact that infectious diseases are the very basic element of national security, addressing them is really critical. So it would be, imagine, imagine if you had the scenario where you only had an army that could fight within the borders of the United States, um, how many uh, enemies would get much closer to us and doing harm rather than fighting them where they may be at at the time. Uh, whether it be the Middle East or wherever. And so, in a sense, USAID is an organization that helps us fight those infectious disease wars wherever they may occur and before they get to our border. And so that that's a, a really critical piece of, of support that we need in the overall science-based public health response. And so to the extent that, uh, that USAID plays that kind of a role in helping to facilitate outbreak responses, um, Losing them would be a critical loss in terms of our overall ability to respond. We've had a number of global trends that appear to be raising the risk of infectious disease and the opportunities for deadly microbes to move from animals to man. Can you speak to what some of those trends are and, and how they may be changing the risk of an infectious disease outbreak, particularly in urban populations and, and the developed world? Right. Well, we really have a, a, a classic perfect storm right now happening with in terms of infectious diseases in humans. I know that's an often overused term, but at the same time, it's a term that really does apply to the confluence of any number of different uh, issues. For example, just take world population, uh, humans. Uh, we're now talking about 7.3 to 7.4 billion people on the face of the earth. One out of every eight people who's ever lived is now on the face of the earth. And the growth uh, around the world is not uniform. It's primarily in the developing world megacities where we see very large slums uh, with deplorable health conditions that just facilitate the, the uh, amplification, in some cases even uh, the transmission resulting in genetic changes of any number of infectious agents. The second thing you have to feed people today uh, to support the food supply and energy sources for those 7.3 to 4 billion people, uh, we count on poultry today. It's the um, animal species for which we have the fastest conversion of energy to protein. Well, take a city like Shanghai, China today, where um, to support that population, every month between 100 million and 125 million chickens are born. From the time that a chicken is born until it's uh, uh, on your plate is about 35 days. So every month, another 100 plus million birds are born. Each one of those is just an ideal uh, test tube, you might say, for influenza virus. Well, now think about that worldwide. For That's just one city. And so today we have this human-animal interface, which is very different, uh, kind of one health uh, emphasis at its best, an approach looking at 
handling human health is from continuum. Um, then you look at transportation. Uh, you know, we've eliminated oceans, mountain ranges, uh, large canyons, and political boundaries as a way to keep uh, infectious agents from moving. Today, because we have this major transportation enhancement of infectious agent movement, it's, it's very important. And then finally, uh, just even think about something as simple and yet as complicated as antibiotic resistance. You know, microbes have been making antibiotics bite off other microbes for space and food ever since the beginning of microbial life on the face of the earth. But it's only been in the last 70 years, roughly, that we've had this major acceleration of use of antibiotics, where now we buy thousands and thousands of tons a year use antibiotics in animal production or human health, where many of them are unnecessary to be used, but every time you do use one, uh, we just fuel the microbial evolution of antibiotic resistance. Microbe reproduces every 20 minutes, and humans roughly over 20 years. Every time there's a mutational mistake in one of either one of the generations, uh, you know, it may be detrimental, but for some cases, it's going to be a positive. So when a microbe suddenly evolves around an antibiotic uh, means of killing that bug, that now becomes a resistant strain. Well, when you're at the genetic blood table every 20 minutes as opposed to every 20 years, you can see what happens with evolution. So we have challenges there. A report that came out of Great Britain last year, a very well, well done research uh, report looking at the potential impact of antibiotic resistant infections uh, proposes that by 2050, uh, it'll exceed the number of deaths uh, from both cancer and diabetes combined antibiotic-resistant infections. So you can see all these are coming to play at the same time. And then finally, last but not least, I have to mention the mosquito world. You know, today we have moved mosquitoes all around the world, wherever they were once located. And because of the kind of conditions that we have today, for example, with plastic garbage around the world, which is the ideal breeding site for Aedes aegypti, the mosquito that is vectoring Zika, dengue, and chikungunya, and yellow fever, uh, we now have created the ideal breeding areas for much of the world that never existed before. Add this all up, and you can see we have some real challenges for the 21st century with infectious diseases. If you look at something like the Zika outbreak or the Ebola outbreak, what does that tell us about our ability to respond to an infectious disease outbreak, and how well positioned are we to respond to a major crisis? Is is there anything to be learned from them? Well, you know, response is, in a sense, a relative term. There's that response, which means you prevent the crisis from happening. There's that response, which is just basically after the fact, but it's one where you really can make a major difference. And then the third kind is just you're just hanging out by the skin of your teeth, but you're responding. And I think that we don't really have any situations today where we're out in front of any of these things that preventing we don't have vaccines. We don't have them located in ways that uh, we can use them for large population numbers. Um, we don't have uh, the kind of planning that would would stop transmission because we can shut down our everyday movements like international travel because today we live in a just-in-time economy where we have to have many of the critical goods that are made around the world every day. So in a sense, um, you know, we just are in really rough shape in general prevention. There are those who talk about taking pandemics off the table, and I think that is a naive idea. It's been forwarded recently as a, a proposition we can do this. 
the two major issues we deal with for pandemic is influenza, which is a disease for which we have a vaccine that is not very effective in many cases, and on top of it, could only be made for a very few number of people uh, in the world before the pandemic were to wipe through. Uh, and the second one is antibiotic resistance, which is kind of a slow-moving tsunami-like pandemic, which is going worldwide. And we have done very little to, on a global basis to really make a difference uh, in that. So I don't think we have the ability right now to take pandemics off the table. Uh, we could, and and if we had game-changing flu vaccines that worked against a number of strains, and you could get vaccinated once and last for a number of years, that would be great. But, um, but right now we don't. So I think our level of preparedness for a real pandemic, global epidemic, um, is actually extremely limited. When, when you think in those terms, I think of the great influenza outbreak of, of 1918, the Spanish flu outbreak, and, and the devastation it brought. What's the likelihood that we could face a crisis of that magnitude? Well, several things have to be understood with influenza. It is basically the king of infectious diseases. Even when smallpox was here on, on the earth, it was a very critical part of the most severe uh, morbidity mortality that humans would know. Um, as uh, you know, today, to understand this, you have to realize that the primary reservoir for influenza viruses are wild aquatic birds. And only when those viruses from those wild aquatic birds, the guts of those birds, actually go through genetic changes, through mutation, or what we call reassortment with other flu viruses, uh, do they actually become capable of infecting humans. And then once they infect a human, can that human transmit to others? It's only when both of those happen that you have this new strain causing diseases in humans. And when that happens, particularly if there is very little immunity in the general population, which is on case, then you have a worldwide epidemic or a pandemic. Those kind of events date back to antiquity. And if you look at history books, it's clear that we've had these going on. The 1918 was one of the more severe ones, where there are over up to 100 million people died uh, at a time when the world population is about a third of what it is today. And, um, you know, it, it, they died from the kind of conditions that we would do a lot better today in terms of our medical care system. Um, we call these things cytokine storms, where the virus basically evoked a very severe immune response in the individual, and that's what really killed them. Um, today, in modern medicine, we're dealing with somebody who's experiencing a severe cytokine storm response to an infectious agent. We still have a very high mortality associated with that. So... Our ability to really uh, say that, yeah, we live in a modern world with modern technology as such we can fight off a pandemic uh, of influenza is just not the case. Even more concerning is the fact that today we live in this just-in-time economy where we are so highly dependent on so many other parts of the world. We did a study several years ago here where we surveyed a, a world-renowned group of PharmDs, pharmacists with doctorates, and said, what are those life-saving drugs you have to have every day or people die? You know, not cancer drugs, some antibiotics, you know, not any of the lifestyle drugs. What's on the crash part in the emergency room? That today, if that doesn't exist, people die right now. We came up with 30 drug-drug categories. And of all 30, all of them are made outside the United States. All of them are generic drugs, for which there are no stockpiles. There's no plans to stockpile them. And they're all just-in-time delivery from where they're made throughout the world. If we had an influenza pandemic today that began to cause any interruption in trade and travel, 
we would be in deep trouble for the collateral damage standpoint. People dying just because they couldn't get these drugs they had to do with the flu itself. So you can see how as a world we're actually more vulnerable in many ways today than we were, you know, decades ago. When in fact uh, we knew better how to get along. Uh, you might say under crisis conditions when we didn't have all these uh, just-in-time delivered products available to us. That wasn't enough for me to lose sleep over. We haven't spoken about bioterrorism and the ability to weaponize infectious disease. As we think about military threats, do we need to think differently in, in terms of the potential threats we face? Well, you know, we're always going to have to worry about things that blow up and, you know, bullets and missiles and guns. That's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but what we, I think, are failing to understand is, is there's a revolution going on in my, microbiology today that is remarkable, and much of it is a very positive thing. We're learning a lot about how to manipulate microorganisms genetically in ways we never could have done before for good purposes. The problem is those, those same technologies can be used for nefarious purposes. And we know that there are bad guys out there. There are, there are bad people in this world who want to do harm to others. And uh, from the standpoint of effectively killing people, biologic agents can be highly effective, more so than any kind of explosive device right up to that of an atomic bomb. And they surely can cause the panic and fear that's often desired with a terrorist event. Uh, people have this uh, fear of infectious agents that, that can sometimes just strip the actual risk right out the door and say, okay, I'm going to you know, react this way because of the sphere. Um, today, if we had three or four or five cases of smallpox anywhere in the world, we'd probably shut down trade travel. We'd have all kinds of issues arise. And so today we have to understand that with modern technology, we also can manipulate these bugs in ways we couldn't do even five to ten years. When I say we, I'm talking about more and more of just common citizens. You know, microbiology still takes some training, still takes some expertise, but we're seeing now work being done altering these organisms in laboratories, not at government secure levels, but at high school and college levels. And, uh, you know, you still have to have your hands on pathogens. It could be a real concern, but in many instances, that's not impossible to do. And more importantly is we may take non-pathogens, non-disease-causing organisms, and today with the technology we have actually make them cause disease. So this is a real concern. Uh, we have to be better prepared to respond to these, understand what are the conditions upon which one of these organisms that might now be made drug-resistant, it might now be made so that it escapes the immunologic protection of what a vaccine was supposedly supposed to do for that organism, or one that is just more virulent, more capable of causing death uh, than, than its predecessor. So that's the issue today we have to be aware of, and just knowing that modern technology is there. I mean, all of us uh, can think back, uh, you know, where we were 10, 15 years ago with our cell phones. You know, at that time, we, with, for those of us who even had a cell phone, you know, it was the big walkie-talkie-like machine, and all it did was just basically had short battery lives that you could talk for a while. Today, look at what we have for our handheld devices. They're remarkable. They're, they, they do many, many different functions. Well, with that increase in technology capability that we see there, we're seeing the same increase in technology ability with laboratory analysis slash laboratory genetic manipulation. It's really a, a challenge we have to deal with. Where do you think the U.S. needs to be making investment and taking preventative measures? Is it in 
vaccine development, new antibiotics, and new classes of drugs to combat infectious diseases? Is it in public health and prevention? What advice would you give to this new administration? Yeah, in Deadliest Enemies, we really attempted to lay out a crisis agenda and to say this is what we need to do first, second, and third. And what we really tried to do is take that by looking at what is it that really scares us, what is it that concerns us, what is it that hurts us, and what is it that kills us. And they're not all the same. And and so what we tried to do is go, what are those things that kill us or that could really change uh, the public health uh, condition of an area or that matter of the world? And then what are those things that do scare us so to the point where they freeze us into inaction and cause very negative social, political, and economic considerations? And the two that come up over and over again is influenza and antimicrobial resistance. We need to be concentrated in those areas right now. They're the biggest impact players. We've got to look at diseases of critical regional importance, you know, MERS viruses, Ebola viruses, all those where we still don't have vaccines for any of these. Um, we, we really go into detail about the pharmaceutical industry today and what role they can and should play. We need them badly. They have the expertise that government doesn't even have. But the problem is, is that what pharmaceutical company today is going to want to take on a pro, uh, an issue where, you know, they, the ability to sell into the future market may be very limited, like Ebola vaccine, but when we need it, we really need it. And um, who's going to pay for that when I mean, there isn't somebody to pay for it? So, so we really have some real challenges there. And, uh, and today, I think that from a U.S. standpoint, we've got to be investing in this as much as a, from a strategic national security investment standpoint as we do from anything that would just be seen as good old public health. Michael Osterholm, Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Michael, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.